it's about family. I mean, the story is about a young couple that has their first child, after all. I mean, there's no more better family than that. And with Christmas comes this increased attention and focus and time spent with family. Now, for most people, that is a good thing. But for some people... Uh, spending time with family is a not-so-good thing. In fact, for some people, the less time they can spend with their family, the better. But no matter what kind of family situation you might be in, when you have something like this happen to you, it will rock your world. Let me introduce to you my granddaughter. This is Kennedy Elizabeth Walker, born Tuesday, December the 6th at 6 p.m., 8 pounds, 5 ounces, 21 inches long, and she is awesome, awesome. And I know this little beautiful thing is going to get older and get a mind of its own and choose to do its own thing and begin to talk back, and when that happens, that's Justin and Amanda's problem, not my problem. But this little one is stuck with us. She was born into this family, and she didn't have a choice. Whether that's a blessing or a curse or a combination of both, she is stuck with us, and this is the same for every one of us out here. We can't pick and choose our family, though some of us wish our families were sort of like sports teams where we could actually hold a draft. We could actually choose our family members, and even trade them to other families, perhaps. You know, like, well, I'd love to trade Uncle Joe maybe for a family member to be named later or something of that nature. Now, any Uncle Joes out here, pardon, I hope I didn't offend you. I don't have an Uncle Joe in my family that I know of unless, of course, we traded him for somebody else. I don't know. But that's the way it is. And in all of our family trees, every one of our family trees, we have twisted, bent, gnarled, broken, misshaped branches. Every one of us. But here's the deal. Guess what? In the very family tree of Jesus Christ, it's the same way. He has a lot of busted, bent, broken, misshaped branches. His bloodline is filled with all kinds of messed up folks. And that's the beautiful thing about God. It's the beautiful thing about Christmas in that God is willing to associate. He's willing to co-mingle with a messed up world. He loves to relate to broken humanity. And that's what Christmas is all about, is that he came not to condemn us. He came to save us. And I want to talk a little bit about that, and we're going to look at the very genealogy of Christ as Matthew records it in Matthew 1. Now, Matthew's eyewitness account, his gospel, is primarily written to a Jewish audience because he's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, that he is the one that the prophecies are talking about, that he is their Jewish king. So in order to do that, he opens up his very eyewitness account. The very first words, Matthew 1, 1 there, they're going to be on the screen, but here's what Matthew says. He says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of of Abraham. Now listen, you can't get any more Jewish or any more messianic than to be a direct descendant of Abraham and David. Abraham is the father of the Hebrew nation and David is considered the great king of the Jews. The only king that the Hebrews consider greater than David will be and is the Messiah. And so right out of the bat, right off the shoot, he he's saying here, "Hey, this is your Jewish king. This is the promised Messiah." Now, the people were anticipating a, 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 a very militant type of Messiah. They were believing that the Messiah was going to come 
And this Messiah was going to free them from the oppression of Rome, the oppression of poverty, the oppression of inhumanity to humanity. He, 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 they believed that not only were they going, was he going to free them, but he was going to exalt them into a place of power and rulership with him, and they would rule the world with their Messiah. So they're looking for this militant Messiah to come on the scene. And when Matthew closes out the genealogy of Christ, it's interesting, it, it, it has a militant tone to it. In verse 13, which closes out the genealogy, this is what it says. It says this, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, that word Christ there means anointed one. It is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. Now, what we got to understand is Christ is not Jesus' last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. So, so Matthew closes out this genealogy with some kind of a militant tone. But then in the next verses, he shifts gears. And he begins to focus on the specifics of Christ's birth. And he talks about a man by the name of Joseph who's engaged to a woman by the name of Mary. She's a virgin, never been with a man. But then she turns up pregnant because the Holy Spirit's come upon her and has impregnated her with the Christ child. Well, Joseph doesn't buy this story that this is a God conception. So he's planning to divorce her. But in the middle of the night, an angel shows up and explains to him that it is a God thing, that he is to marry this woman, and he does. And at the closing of the explanation the angel has to Joseph about this baby, this is what the angel says in Matthew 1, 21. She, Mary, will give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. Say Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Let that sink in a moment. Give him the name Jesus because he will save their, his people from their sins. It's interesting here. Matthew doesn't include the title Christ here. He just says the name Jesus because the name Jesus is a derivative of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And he's talking about the salvation that Christ is bringing to the people because here's the deal. The primary reason Jesus Christ came the first time was to deal with the sin issue of humanity. Because the reason that we have oppressive governments like Rome at the time of Christ, and we have oppression of poverty, and we have the oppression of man's inhumanity to man, and we have all the social ills and problems and, and difficulties and sufferings that we have to deal with every day is because of human sin. And our issues aren't external issues. Our issues are internal issues. And Christ came to deal with the internal issue of sin. See, no amount of reform is going to change the human heart. It will curb the human heart, but it won't change it. Reform won't change. Only redemption changes the human heart. And that's what Jesus Christ came to bring. And that's why his bloodline can be filled with a bunch of messed up people because he came to save them from their sins that's the freedom that he brings to every one of us and what i want to do very quickly i want to focus on three people in his genealogy and every person in that genealogy has a story but i want to focus on three people for us to really get the idea of the freedom that this Jesus Christ brings to us that perhaps somewhere in our lives here today we can get a hold of this greater freedom that Christ 
offers us. Now, the first person we want to look at is found in verse 3. And it says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Tamar is the daughter-in-law to Judah. Judah is a great-grandson of Abraham. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He's one of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Tamar was married to his son. His son dies before Tamar can have a child. And this story is told in Genesis 38, by the way. So you can go there and read this story on your own. So she's without a child. Now, to be a woman to be without a child at that particular time was a great sign of shame and scorn upon her. So she's in great depression. She's wanting a child. Well, Judah, one particular evening, he, he's in need of companionship, so he goes looking for a prostitute. Tamar, who uh, sees this happening, she comes up with a plot. She dresses herself up as a prostitute, goes to the place that Judah would visit, and seduces him, and this daughter-in-law sleeps with her father-in-law. I, I mean, soap operas don't get any better than this right here. And she becomes pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. And they are born out of lust and deceit. The lust of Judah and the deceit of Tamar. That's their family condition. That's what they're born into. But here's what's interesting. God was so moved at the plight of Perez and Zerah that he doubly blessed them. In fact, Perez's name is associated with blessing even today in the Hebrew culture. Many Jews will say to other Jews, they will say, be blessed as Perez is blessed. May God bless you as he blessed Perez. It's interesting, his name is not associated with the lust and the deceit of his family. His name is associated with the blessing of God. And here's the first freedom, if you will, I want to I share with you out of this. This says to me that regardless of our family situation, there is a defining place in Christ for us. Regardless of our family situation, there is a defining place for us in Christ. Let me just go ahead and free everybody in the room. All families are dysfunctional. Aren't you glad you came to hear that? Be free right now. Look at your neighbor and say you're dysfunctional. All families are dysfunctional. Why? Because every family is marred and tainted and, and marked by sin. All families have their issues, and those, that dysfunction can range from petty jealousies all the way to, unfortunately, abuse within homes. It, 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 can, it can deal with all the different scandals that family has. And all families have secrets and stuff that they don't talk about because it's so scandalous because every family is dysfunctional. But here's the deal. We don't have to be defined by the dysfunction of our families. Our true identity is defined by Christ. Just as Perez was not defined by the deceit and lust of his family, he was defined by the blessings of God. You and I can be defined in Jesus Christ. We do not have to have the dysfunctions of our family rule and determine who we are and be perpetuated onto our family generations. It can stop with us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus has some amazing words that he shares in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. These are some of my famous words or favorite words of Christ. It's a great invitation. He says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, that word yoke there 
is a word that uh, rabbis used. It, it, the yoke of a rabbi was the, the nature of that rabbi. It was the belief system and the value system, the worldview of that rabbi. And when someone would choose to follow that rabbi, they would take the yoke of that rabbi. In essence, it was taking the identity of that rabbi. And that's what Christ is saying here. When you come follow me, you take my identity because I'll tell you, my identity, it'll bring rest to your souls. It'll relieve you of the misidentity in your life, the dysfunction that we've chosen to carry or has been forced upon us. When I was a little boy, everybody used to tell me that I looked like my mother. Now, seeing how my dad turned out, I'm thankful that I look like my mother, to be honest with you. But when I was a little boy, I didn't like to look like my mother because I didn't want to look like a girl. I was a boy. And it used to hack me off. But I would hold it back, you know, and somebody would say, oh, you look like your mother. And I would just stare at him. And my dad or my mom would sort of hit me upside the head and say, say thank you. Thank you. I didn't mean it. But I'll never forget this. I remember this. I was about six or seven years old. I'm with my dad. He's on some speaking engagement somewhere. My dad is a, is a minister, by the way, for those that I've not had the opportunity of meeting. But uh, I'm, on, I'm with him on some speaking engagement. We step into the elevator, just he and I, and this woman steps in. And we're in the elevator, and we're going up, and she looks at me. And she says, you look just like your mother. And I'd had it. I reached up and grabbed my dad's hand. And I remember, I pointed at this woman. She said, you look just like your mama. I said, no, I don't. I look like my daddy. Now, what was I doing? I was making a declaration of what my identity was going to be. Some of us in this room, we have been so broken and misshaped and, and warped and misdefined by dysfunction in our family. Some of us need to come to the understanding that I have a heavenly Father who has stepped into this world in the person of Jesus Christ to redefine who I am and make me whole and heal me from the brokenness that has come into my life. And some of us need to spiritually grab a hold of the hand of our heavenly daddy and speak to those things that are trying to misdefine us and say, no, I'm not. I'm like my daddy. Regardless of my family situation, there's a defining place for me in Christ. The second person I want to look at here is in verse 5 of Matthew 1. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth is told in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And if I, if I remember correctly, it is the shortest of the Old Testament books. If it isn't, it's one of the shortest of the Old Testament books. But Ruth, now listen close, Ruth is a Gentile pagan. She has no Jewish blood in her whatsoever. She's a Gentile pagan who most likely was raised to worship all kinds of other gods and idols and most likely was exposed to human sacrifice, which was very prominent in pagan worship at that time. Now think about this a moment. In the very bloodline of Jesus Christ, who is to be 100% Jew, is this Gentile blood. 
No good Jew would ever be associated with Gentile, much less have Gentile blood in their bloodline. And here Ruth is named as in the very bloodline of Jesus Christ, this Gentile pagan. But here how the story goes. She marries into a Hebrew family. And when she marries into that Hebrew family, this woman, Ruth, declares the Hebrew God her God. She declares the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as being her God. In fact, she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She renounces all the other gods of paganism. She renounces all the other false gods, and she chooses the God of Abraham. What this says to me is that regardless of my spiritual condition, there's a redemptive place for me in Christ. Regardless of what my spiritual upbringing is, regardless of what my spiritual experience has been, regardless of the spiritual of exposure I've had, whether that's been to false religions or whether that's been to my own religious concoction or spiritual reality that I've sort of for, uh, forged out for myself, regardless if that means I have some, type, some types of atheism uh, uh, ideals or whatever, regardless of what the spiritual condition it is, it does not disqualify me from still being able to engage in what Christ offers me in his redemption. Christ doesn't run away from us because of whatever false God we might have gotten into or whatever religious thing that we we're into or whatever spiritual way we're walking. He still comes to where we are and he says, look, you follow me. Because the word redemption here, it means to be made brand new. It means to be changed. It means to be transformed. It means to come out of whatever it is you're in and to be placed in a brand new thing to live and be a brand new way. See, here's the deal. Jesus Christ did not come to offer us religion. He doesn't offer us religion. Christ didn't come to establish Christianity. We've named it that. He didn't come to offer us a religion. In fact, Christ... Christ can't stand religion. You look in the Gospels. Look who got him the most upset. Look at the ones he, he really went off on. And that was the religious leaders who were trying to impose religion upon the people. Because religion says this. Religion says, I have to, in my own ability, in my own works, work myself up to God. i got to be good enough to reach God. Well, number one, I'm never going to be good enough to reach God. I'll always fall way short. So that's a futile way to live. Secondly... It's what we call idolatry. If, if, if I believe I have the ability in and of myself to become like God and to reach Him, I don't need a Savior. In fact, it's just the opposite if I'm going to come to Christ. I've got to acknowledge I can't reach you on my own. I fall right short. I need a redemptive Savior. See, Christ doesn't offer religion. Christ offers relationship. That's what God did. He stepped down to this world. And what does Christ, you look, in the, you look in the Gospels, everywhere Christ goes, what does he say? Follow me. Follow me. He calls us into relationship. He doesn't heap rules and regulations. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, get yourself cleaned up and get yourself good enough to be with me. He says, no, as you are, you come follow me. I'll clean you up. I'll do the transforming in your life. He says some amazing words in John 14, verse 6. His disciples are asking him about who he is and where he's going and what's going to happen. And these are his words. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This deal of come to the Father is the idea of entering into relationship. But right here, 
Jesus Christ really, though that's not what he's doing directly when he answers this, but indirectly, he is addressing the whole issue of do all religions lead to God? Because what does Jesus say here? He didn't say, I am a way, did he? He didn't say, I am one of many ways. He didn't say, I'm another option. What does he say? I am, say that loud with me, the way. He's saying, I'm the only way to God. That's a major statement. He said, I'm the only way. So he's basically addressing this issue that all religions lead to God. Well, that's going to be, if, if what Christ says is true, that he's the only way, then all the other religions are obviously making false claims. If Christ isn't telling the truth, then what difference does it make? Why do we even need to be here? Just pick and choose your own kind of way and go for it. But Christ comes and he says, I invite you into a relationship with me. When my son, Justin Jeremy, made mention of him, he's the worship leader here. When he was a little boy, he was about three or four. We were living in Orlando, Florida at the time, and my in-laws came down to visit with us at Christmas time and wanted to take him to the mall to do some toy shopping and and uh, they took him there, and, you know, Justin was at that age where he's beginning to get it. You know, when they're little bitty things at Christmas, they have no clue as to what's going on. And don't even, don't even waste your time buying them a gift, because they usually chew on the paper and play with the box. They don't even play with the toy. So don't even waste your time. But, except for my granddaughter, she'll take all the toys you welcome to give her. But he's about three or four, so he's beginning to get it, you know? It's beginning to, to really ring within him. And we've told him about Jesus, and this is the story of his birth. And that, that scripture, his scripture verse, that particular Sunday, prior to being with my in-laws at the, at the mall, was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That was the scripture verse they learned. And so there they are at the mall, and my in-laws tell the story that he's seeing all the lights, and he's seeing all the decorations, and he's seeing the toys, and he's hearing the music, and oh man, just all the excitement is just building up within him. And right there in the middle of the mall, in a loud voice, he just blurts out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And people begin to look at him, and he keeps doing it. He doesn't stop. And my, my in-laws didn't know what to do. I mean, well, you're not going to shush the kid but when he's talking about Jesus. You're not going to do that. So they said, well, let's just go. And so they, they leave the mall, and all throughout the mall, anybody he saw, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ into the parking lot. See, he got it. Folks, it's that simple. Three-year-olds get it. Receive me, he says. Let me take your life. Watch what happens. Regardless of our spiritual condition, there's a redemptive place for us in Christ. And the final person we look at, in verse 6 of Matthew 1, it says, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This story is told in 2 Samuel 11. And it's interesting. Did you notice? Do you notice? He says, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. They don't name her. 
They named Ruth. They named Tamar. But they don't name Uriah's wife. Now, 2 Samuel 11 tells us who it is. It's Bathsheba. If you know the story, what happened is Solomon is the illegitimate child of King David and Uriah's wife Bathsheba because when David hooked up with Bathsheba, she was still married to Uriah. I told you soap operas don't get any better. And the reason most scholars believe that Matthew doesn't name Bathsheba is so that the reader will know David had an adulterous affair. See, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. The Bible doesn't try to cover things up. It lets its heroes be fallen heroes. It doesn't try to cover up the embarrassing thing of its heroes. No, it puts it out there. But see, the story goes that David, as king, he's standing out on his balcony of his palace, which would overlook all of the roofs, rooftops of the homes there in Jerusalem. He sees this woman Bathsheba, and she's bathing. He wants her for himself. Her husband Uriah is out fighting the battles. He calls Bathsheba to himself and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. To cover that up, he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and gets him drunk and tries to get him to sleep with his wife, but he won't do so because David's thinking is if I call him from the battlefield, he sleeps with the wife, she becomes pregnant, everybody thinks it's Uriah's baby. I'm clear, but he won't sleep with her. So then David changes his course of action, sends him back to the very front lines and communicate and gets a message to them. When the battle gets heated, everybody pull back except you don't tell Uriah so he'll be killed. And that's exactly what happened because now David's thinking is with Uriah dead, I'll take Bathsheba into my home, I'll make her my wife, she'll become pregnant and everybody will think everything's okay. He fooled everybody but one person, God. And God pointed out his sin, and David repented. Here's the deal. Regardless of our failures, there is still a useful place for us in Christ. I mean, this guy failed royally. I mean, adultery, murder, cover-up, abused his power as king. I mean, you, you, you can't get any worse than this guy. Yet David, God did not throw him away. God didn't cast him out. God, said, You're, God didn't say, you're such soiled goods, I can't use you. No, he still was able to use David. Listen, sin brings consequences. There's no doubt about that. And God lets those consequences come to us so that we will recognize what the pain of sin does in our lives. He allows it as a disciplinary measure so we'll realize this is not what I want in my life. But here's the beauty. Sin brings consequences, but God brings forgiveness. And where we take our sin, just as David did, and we repent and we take it to the Lord and say, forgive me, I have blown it. And his forgiveness is quick, his forgiveness is clear, and it's clean. And he doesn't throw us away, and he doesn't say, you're not useful for me anymore. And the great thing about God is, even though we may be walking in the consequences of some of our failures right now, he walks with us. He doesn't sit there and say, well, as soon as you can get through all of this, I'll be here waiting for you. No, he jumps right smack dab in the middle of the consequences and helps us get through them. And I don't know what failures you've brought in here. And I don't know how people have labeled you. You know, family members, friends, you've blown it so many times. 
The way they look at you is they look at you as a, just a simple failure. I don't know what labels have been placed on you. I don't know what people have walked away from you because of your failures. And maybe that's some of the consequences we have to deal with. But I want to say, share with you right now, and I hope you hear this, no matter how many people have labeled you, no matter how many people have walked away from you because of failures in your life, the Lord Jesus Christ does not. When everybody else is walking away, he's coming to where you are. And he's saying, here I am. Don't let your failures define and determine your life. Regardless of our family situation, regardless of our spiritual condition, regardless of our failures, there is a useful, redemptive, defining place in Jesus Christ. And I close with this story. There's a story by the name of Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond was a 26-year-old British runner who was favored to win the 400-meter race in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. Halfway into his semifinal heat, the story goes, a fiery pain seared through his right leg. He crumpled to the track with a torn hamstring. As the medical attendants were approaching, Redmond fought to his feet. It was an animal's instinct, he would say later. He sat out hopping, pushing away the coaches in a crazed attempt to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a big man pushed through the crowd, and he was wearing a T-shirt that read, Have you hugged your child today? And a hat that said, Just do it. The man was Jim Redman, Derek's dad. You don't have to do this, he told his weeping son. Yes, I do, Derek declared. Well then, said Jim, we're going to finish this together. And they did. Jim wrapped Derek's arm around his shoulder and helped him hobble to the finish line. Fighting off security men, the son's head sometimes buried in his, on his father's chest, they stayed in Derek's lane to the end. The crowd clapped, they stood, they cheered, they wept as father and son finished the race. What made the father do it? What made the father leave the stands to meet his son on the track? Was it the strength of the child? No. It was the pain of his child. His son was hurting and fighting to complete the race. So the father came to help him finish. Why did our heavenly father step out of the stands of heaven? Into this human race? Was it because of our strength? Absolutely not. It was because of our pain. It was because of our failures. It was because of our fallenness. It was because of our brokenness. It was because of our dysfunction. And he steps down in the person of Christ and says, Here, run this race with me. I invite you to take a moment just to bow your head and close your eyes, if you will, please.